Hello and welcome to Sermons from First Press, a weekly podcast from the First Presbyterian Church of Ann Arbor, Michigan. This is Rebecca Torres Davenport. Please pray with me as we pray our prayer of illumination. Living God, help us to hear your word that we may truly understand the understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow your way in all faithfulness, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Amen. From the book of Mark, chapter 9, verse 14 through 29. When Jesus and Peter, James and John, returned to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw Jesus, they were immediately overcome with awe, and they ran forward to greet him. Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak, and whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down. And he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. Jesus answered them, You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it threw the boy into convulsions, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often cast him into fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, If you are able, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You spirit that keep this child from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the child was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he was able to stand. When Jesus had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? He said to them, this kind can come out only through prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Dear friends, wherever you are on this day, grace and peace to you. From the sovereign God, the architect of the whole universe, the lover of our souls, and from Jesus Christ, God's only child. I'm the Reverend Rick Spaulding, and I'll be incorporating a few verses from Paul's letter to the Philippians in the midst of what I have to say to you today, which goes under the title, Unafraid. So you may remember that during the weeks that will lead us to Easter, we're asking ourselves a Lenten question that might provoke some sort of discipline of taking stock, 
that one associates with this Lenten season and that might nudge us to do that spiritual work not only as individuals but also as a community. The question that we've settled into here at First Pres is, why are we here? Which is a way of wondering, what does it mean when we feel drawn together in the ways that we do? To what ends? What does our being together make possible? How does our being together change who we are? Of course, at the time that we made our plans to focus Lent this way, we couldn't possibly have imagined that the circumstances around us would shift so dramatically and that they would take in not just this congregation or this city, but the whole globe. Nor could we have imagined the rich irony that right in the middle of our wondering what it means for us to be here, we can't be here, at least not physically together in this familiar and beloved room under these reassuring rafters in these corridors that hold so many memories and have hummed with so many projects for so many of us. But I think Lent is a time for the pushing and stretching of questions. So it feels right today to ask the question with some sort of extra moxie, why are we here nevertheless? Why are we here anyway, in spite of, notwithstanding, even in the face of circumstances and forces that seem to be trying to pull us apart? What part of the nature of the here-ness of our being together transcends mere geography and lives in the waves of sound and the pulses of electrons that we can visualize rippling out now from 1432 Washtenaw Avenue? How are we here even when we're not here? Which, if you think about it, is the kind of question that our faith gives us some practice with. For instance, how is it that he's alive even though we saw him die? And how is it that grace abounds and amazes even though we've seen so much of the brokenness of the world? And how is it that we believe even in spite of everything that fuels our doubt? Among questions like that, why are we here even when we're not here? Fits right in. Each week of this Lent, we've given a particular experiential edge to the question about why we're here. Two weeks ago, you might remember, we named the fact that we're here seeking wholeness because our lives have taught us a lot about brokenness. And then last week, we said that we're here seeking movement, direction, restoration because our lives have taught us many things about being stuck. And today, we're here seeking trust because our lives have taught us about two powerful things that obstruct trust, fear and doubt. And each week we've been overhearing a piece of an ancient letter to a community. Paul's attempts to encourage the communities he helped to found to take stock 
and refocus and realign themselves to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform their life together. So here today are a few verses from his letter to the Philippians. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Paul wrote those words from a Roman prison in chains. So presumably he knew a good deal about both fear and trembling. The gospel story that Becca read for us this morning offers a portrait of an anguished father beset by fear and trembling, longing to find a power for good that he can trust to save his family from the frightening reality that they've been facing at home, an illness resembling epilepsy has been threatening the life of that father's child for years which has caused him to seek out the itinerant rabbi whose reputation as a healer has been drawing crowds. But when the father and the son get to the place where they expected to find the teacher, Jesus and a few of his disciples have gone off somewhere on a prayerful retreat. And the rest of the disciples who stayed behind are unable to do anything for the terribly afflicted child, try as they might. This is the more disturbing to them, those disciples, because only a little while earlier, Jesus had actually sent them off to confront the very forms of illness that in their time were associated with evil spirits. But the disciples' preparation seemed to have been of no avail in this case with the Father. And to make matters worse, in Jesus' absence, a group of the scribes who've made it their business to taunt Jesus and his followers have shown up again, and an ugly scene has broken out around the failed healing, so that now there's wounded pride to be healed along with epilepsy. But when Jesus returns, it gets worse for a few minutes before it gets better. When the father steps out of the crowd to explain the healing that he'd come hoping to find for his child, Jesus actually loses his temper. Now that's not a state of mind that we like to attribute to Jesus. And in this case, it's not entirely clear what provoked him to say such harsh words. You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How long must I put up with you? We can probably assume that Jesus is impatient with the disciples, who he must have hoped would have begun to develop their own abilities as healers by now, impatient with them rather than with the father who only, after all, wants relief for his tormented child. Since we can assume that this story found its way into the gospel through the memory of those very same disciples, I almost wonder if they remembered Jesus' words later 
as having had a particularly sharp edge because in hindsight, like so many of us, they realized that they had indeed squandered some part of the blessing of the company of that one during that painfully short time that he was actually with them. In any case, Jesus then turns to the frazzled father who describes the suffering of the child in the grip of that terrible illness and makes his request of Jesus with all due humility. If you are able to do anything, have mercy on us and save us. But now it's the father's turn to encounter the startling transparency of Jesus who seems almost dismissive of the Father's deference. If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. But transparency begets transparency, doesn't it? The sharpness of Jesus' rejoinder exposes the next layer deeper in the Father's courage and candor. I believe, he cries, I believe, help My unbelief, he says, unforgettably. Almost as though he's refuting Jesus' easy confidence. If anything is possible for the one who has a full measure of unconflicted faith, well then, Jesus, what about the rest of us? The father, working out his own salvation with fear and trembling, speaks words that echo down the ages to this moment. Afterwards, after the astonishing healing of the boy, Jesus has a gentler moment with the disciples. He takes them aside and speaks to their despair in not having been able to help the distressed father themselves. When they ask what went wrong, Jesus replies, this kind, this kind of illness, this kind of torment can only come out through prayer. But what exactly is prayer then? And when was it that it happened in this story? I mean, we don't see whatever methods of healing the disciples might have tried before Jesus got there. But evidently they didn't include prayer if they didn't work. And we don't see Jesus either speaking to the God of the universe to intervene. Jesus speaks to the demons who inflict their torment. No, the one who seems to offer the faithful entreaty to God is, of all people, the Father. The one whose working out of his own salvation includes fear and trembling, belief and unbelief. until the coronavirus took over our landscape. We'd been expecting to be together this morning here in this sanctuary in one of the most here moments of our life together as a church, which is the sacrament of baptism. The public health crisis going on around us postponed that possibility, alas. But I invite you who are listening to contemplate for a moment the space that that postponement left behind, because it's not an empty space. But you may actually have an easier time seeing the fullness of that space if you're not here, and so looking at it instead with the eyes of your heart.
Now, the font is here, as it always is. You can picture that, brimful of grace and at the ready. And so are the questions here. The questions that the ancient traditions of the church teach us to ask as part of every baptism, they still hover in the energy of spirit that ripples out from this place, and I think you can see them if you think about it. Who is your Lord and Savior? Do you trust him? Do you intend to be his disciple, to obey his word and to show his love? And that second question in particular. Sometimes, at times like this, when doubt and fear fill the landscape so full that they push us apart, that question, do you trust him, expands to fill the whole space. Do you trust? And then, here is this ancient story of Scripture teaching us the words of the holiest prayer of the anguished Father. Do you trust? Well, I believe. Help my unbelief. The prayer that was somehow enough to defeat the demons with its mixture of courage and candor, drenched in the anguished love of the Father for the epileptic child. The same ingenious love of the four friends who found a way to lower their paralyzed friend through a hole in the ceiling, for God's sake. And the same stubborn love of people who are unwilling to let mere geography separate them from the community where they pool their prayers and their trust. I believe, help my unbelief. It turns out to be prayer enough. New Testament scholar Ched Myers says that to pray is to learn to believe in a transformation of self and world that seems empirically impossible, as in moving mountains. What is unbelief but the despair that nothing can really change? No wonder that when Jesus takes the disciples aside at the end of the story to minister to their broken-hearted failure to help the Father themselves, he explains that it's not magic that heals only the prayer that is brave enough to be fully honest. A few verses after that passage I read you a few minutes ago from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Having been honest with them about the fear and trembling that are not antithetical to prayer, but part of prayer's deepest authenticity, Paul turned a stubborn corner in his letter, and he wrote to the Philippians, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I will say, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Well, we can only see him with the eyes of the heart now.
But I think you can almost see the clenching of Paul's fist and the working of his jaw and his rising to the full stature of his spirit, even in prison, even in chains, to reclaim and reaffirm the trust that had saved his life. Writing from prison, probably in Rome, he reminds me of the Italians we read about this weekend confined to their apartments in a nation locked down and beset with terrifying illness, with every reason for fear and trembling, kept apart from each other by the danger of contagion. And yet, did you read this? Nevertheless, and notwithstanding, rising to the full stature of their spirits and standing in their balconies, leaning out their windows, singing arias to each other, singing the national anthem, singing their songs, pouring their pooled trust out into the street, out into the air like a prayer. I believe, help my unbelief. I am well, help my infirmity. We are together, help our separation. I belong, help my unbelonging. I am here, help my not being here. What does our being together make possible? It makes possible the pooling of our trust. How does our being together change who we are? It puts us within hearing of the voice that banishes the evil demons of despair that try to cast us into the fires of hatred or drown us in the sea of apathy. It teaches us to practice prayer as the art of leaning toward the possible. It teaches us to believe the future into being, which is part of why we're here. Amen. Let us continue on now in a spirit of prayer. Precious Lord, take our hands, take our hearts, take our vulnerability. Take our need of you and hold us close now, breathing upon us our healing, our healing, your healing and power of love. For here we are on this day of all days, turning to you, trusting you. Hear our prayers, O God. You know everything about us. Many of us feel alone right now, with few around us because of social distancing, some by choice and others by directive. We are fearful for our neighbors, and they are fearful for us. We are judging what we do not know, and we are being judged. Our anxiety is high. Calm us and sustain us in the prayers we offer today. Lord of peace, we remember those living in coronavirus hotspots and those currently in isolation. May they know your presence in their isolation, your peace in their turmoil, and your patience in their waiting. Prince of peace, you are powerful and merciful. God of all comfort and counsel, we pray particularly for those throughout the world who are grieving because of this virus reeling from the sudden loss of loved ones. May they come to know your fellowship in their suffering, your comforts in their loss, and your hope 
and their despair. We name before you those known to us who are vulnerable and scared, the frail, the sick, and the elderly. We also remember those doctors, pastors, and family members who are caring for all such people right now. God of all comfort, you are powerful and merciful. God who heals, we pray for all medical professionals dealing daily with the intense added pressures of this crisis. Grant them resilience in weariness, discernment in diagnosis, and compassion upon compassion as they care. We thank you for the army of researchers cooperating towards a cure. Give them clarity, serendipity, and unexpected breakthroughs, we pray. Rise, son of righteousness, above this present darkness with healing in your rays. You are powerful and merciful. God of all wisdom, we pray for our leaders, the World Health Organization and national governments and local leaders too, heads of schools, hospitals, and other institutions. Since you have positioned these people in public service for this hour, we ask you to grant them wisdom beyond their own wisdom to contain this virus, faith beyond their own faith to fight this fear, and strength beyond their own strength to sustain vital institutions through this time of turmoil. God of all wisdom and counsel, you are powerful and merciful. God who is through all and in all, we know that there are other needs facing the world, places of violence, places of pain, places where hatred grows, where so many things divide us. Let us not forget to find the source of suffering wherever it may be and work hand in hand with you to relieve it for those physically hungry, for those thirsty, for justice, for those without shelter and safety in this world. Come, Lord Jesus, meet them, protect them, save them, and love them. Holy God, whose spirit moved over the waters at the dawn of creation, hear our prayers for all who thirst today. We pray for those who are spiritually thirsty, who long to know your presence, but don't know where to find you. We pray for those who are alone and without hope, those who long to feel needed and loved, those who are searching for meaning and purpose. O oh, healing river, pour down your waters and heal your people. You are powerful and merciful, and in your strong name we pray together. Our, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. For more information, visit us on the web at www.firstpresbyterian.org or send an email to info at firstpresbyterian.org. See you next week for another sermon from First Press.